ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, simply a fantastic show this week. Three tremendous guests. Joining me will be Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. We're going to look at ETF flows and performance so far this year, and also just more broadly discuss how investors and advisors are reacting to everything right now, because we're in a situation where not much is working, right? You have both broad stocks and broad bonds down in the neighborhood of 10%. And I think there's a decent amount of concern moving forward. So Tom and I will get into that, which will be perfect because I'll then be joined by Corey Hofstein, co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research, who earlier this year, they rolled out a new suite of ETF model portfolios in partnership with Simplify ETFs. And again, we'll get into this, but in a nutshell, Corey believes investors and advisors need to rethink traditional portfolio construction right now because of the changing dynamics in the financial markets. Uh, he, he thinks investors should consider things like uh, capital efficiency in a portfolio, uh, re return stacking, and hedging for sharp tail events. And given the continued innovation in ETFs, the fact is products do now exist that allow you to accomplish these things and accomplish them pretty well. So we'll have a conversation around that. And I'm going to tell you right now, uh, it's highly possible Corey is one of the smartest people I've ever had on this podcast. I'm going to do my best to keep up with him. I'm just telling you the guy's operating on like the uh, rocket scientist level. But I think you'll enjoy hearing from him. Also one of the nicest guys in investing. And then to close this week, another one of the truly good guys, always one of my favorite guests. I'll be joined by Eric Balchunas, senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg, who actually today is out with a brand new book. 
It's titled The Bogle Effect, How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. And I had an opportunity to read this over the weekend. No surprise, this thing does not disappoint. Greatly enjoyed it, highly recommended. And we're going to get to hear from Eric on why he wrote the book, some of his biggest takeaways. I have a few thoughts I want to get his take on, so really looking forward to that as well. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments to ETFprime.com. Let's start with ETF Trends, Tom Lydon. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, thanks for joining me this week. Hey, Nate, how are you? Great to talk to you. I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? Great. It was great seeing you in Florida. Thanks again for coming. Yeah. Have you uh, fully recovered from the event? I know we're, we're two weeks past it now. Are, are you uh, kind of getting back into the normal swing of things? Yeah, just pl playing catch up, uh, coming off the high. It was just so great seeing everybody, uh, the interaction, uh, just the buzz that was going around. And we continue to live it through Twitter and social media. So, uh, it's crazy, but we can't rest because February 23 is coming really fast, so we're all in the planning mode for that already. Well, I told uh, Todd Rosenbluth last week, I thought you and the team put on a, a truly wonderful event. I had just a blast. It was so great seeing everyone in person. And to your point, I'm already looking forward to next year. I, I can't wait to see if you're able to top it. My, my guess is you will, uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing how you, uh, how you put everything together there. Um, okay, Tom, so a lot for us to talk about. Let's start with ETF flows. And we can talk both year-to-date flows and then also these recent outflows, which have picked up here. But I thought I'll just hand this over to you. What's standing out to you in the ETF flow data right now? Well, a lot of it we talked about in Florida. Uh, and, and it really comes down to what are advisors and investors most concerned about. And as we know, uh, yeah, they're concerned about volatility in the equity side of the market, but it's really the fixed income side of the market with all the pressure from inflation and rising interest rates. Little money uh, has been going into fixed income, and areas have been moving out of the traditional 60-40 into alternative areas like commodities. I mean, in U.S. fixed income, to have $11 billion dollars in uh, you know, in going into fixed income ETFs year to date is somewhat concerning for sure, and then having more than three times the amount that we saw all in 21 going into commodities. Now we've topped 21 billion dollars in commodity ETFs. There, there are definitely some shifts that are on um, on the equity side, as you know and you point out. Uh, Investors tend to buy on dips. Advisors are conditioned to do that as well. However, a little bit of volatility here and there, like we saw in this last week, some of those traditional S&P indexes and ETFs saw some outflows as there's some jitters in the market as well. It's almost like uh, being Nick, Nick Claxton at the foul line. Nothing seems to be working. <laughs> well, you actually hit on the two areas, uh, two areas that stood out to me. And by the way, we are at about... 
$180 billion in inflows for the year overall in ETFs. I think that's important to point out. Uh, pr- pretty good year so far. Not the uh, the record-breaking pace that we saw last year, but I think still notable given all of the the volatility in the markets right now. But uh, yeah, the, the the two things that stood out to me, I mean, commodity ETFs have taken in more than fixed income ETFs overall this year. I, I think that's noteworthy. The, the other thing is you talk about the recent outflows from S&P 500 ETFs. So I, I pulled these figures this morning. So uh, over the past 30 days, Two of the largest S&P 500 ETFs, the Vanguard uh, S&P 500, VOO, and then the iShares Core S&P 500, IVV. VOO has, has seen about $8 billion in outflows over the past 30 days, and IVV about $10 billion in outflows over the past 30 days. And then I pulled SPY. SPY, and of course, that's more of a trading tool than, than a, a longer-term buy-and-hold allocation for a lot of investors. That has seen positive inflows here recently, but if you look year-to-date, that's lost about $21 billion. And I, I guess the question I have for you, Tom, is do you make anything of that? You know, certainly there could be some tax loss harvesting going on in, in VOO and in IVV here recently. But does that tell you anything? Or, or do you think we'll just it's a short term dip? We'll see investors come in and buy like we always do and move on down the road. Yeah, I, I think it's just sentiment. I think the big thing, Nate, is we're going to talk a little bit about the AAII um, sentiment numbers, but the key thing here is when you look at earnings, and that's what most people are focused on. We're 20% into earnings season, and Nate, the surprising thing is 76% of those that have reported have beat so far. So mm-hmm. it's not as though earnings are disappointing. It's really concerned uh, with the global marketplace, global tension, uh, inflation, what the Fed's going to do to react to that. There's a lot of shifts that are going on. And frankly, the average do-it-yourself advisor, uh, investor, or, or self-directed in- investor, or financial advisor, they're seeing more money in motion than they've seen in over 10 years. And this is one of the things that came out of exchange. People are unsettled, and uh, they're not really sure about what the outlook might be for the rest of the year. Well, let's tie this into ETF performance a little bit. And I know you saw my tweet last Friday afternoon where I listed year-to-date returns for a bunch of different ETFs, right, covering a variety of asset classes. And I actually went back and updated these this morning. I want to give you a quick rundown here, and then we can bat these around a bit, because overall, they certainly paint an unpleasant picture, shall we say. So so let me start at the top. So if you look, broad-based commodities, an ETF like PDBC, up 30% this year. Gold, so GLD, up 4% this year. And then here's where things start getting ugly. You look at broad U.S. bonds, so an ETF like AGG, down 9% year-to-date. SPY, S&P 500, down 10%. IEFA, so developed international stocks, down 11%. IEMG, emerging market stocks, down 13%. IWM, small cap U.S. stocks, down 13%. Uh, you know, I had to throw uh, throw Bitcoin in there. So if you look at the uh, the ProShares Bitcoin Future Strategy ETF, BITO, down 13% as well. Uh, QQQ, which is obviously heavier in the FANG stocks in tech, the NASDAQ 100, that's down 17%. And then TLT, so 20-plus year treasuries, down 18%. And then one other one I'll add, just because I, I do think a lot of advisors own an allocation here, something like V&Q, so broad-based read exposure, 
that's down 5%. And so here's the bottom line, Tom. I mean, outside of commodities and gold, everything is negative this year. And in many cases, down 10% plus. So, so I'm just curious, as you look at this return data, and again, perhaps we can sort of marry this up with the ETF flow data we just discussed as well. Do you think investors and advisors are now uh, reconsidering their portfolio construction if they hadn't previously? Or do you think people will hold the line here? And I know we just talked about maybe, you know, holding the line on the S&P 500. And maybe that's just a shorter term blip. But even though being down 10 percent overall in some of these asset classes isn't the end of the world, uh, I think in some cases it's actually the price of admission for long term investors. Do you see investors sort of reacting to this now, now that we're four months into the year and you, and you have, again, you know, broad stocks and bonds down 10 percent and you look at some of these other asset classes outside of commodities not not performing well. What, what do you think investors are going to do? Well, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, you, if you look at the core like the S&P 500 and you look at the core like the ag, they are diversifying away from that. Just a couple points. You brought up the S&P being down 10 percent. RSP, which is the equal weight 500, is only down 6%. Mm -hmm. and, and that's because FANG stocks, which have been the backbone of the S&P coming out of the financial crisis, have done really well, recently have underperformed. And, you know, we don't have to dissect that because we know who the culprits are there. The other thing is, when you look at commodities, although gold's up 5%, uh, you look at something like PDBC is up 30%. The Invesco Optimum Yield Diversified Commodity ETF gold over the last year has been the worst performing commodity area. So that's another thing where you're starting to see flows into the commodities that traditionally might have gone into gold as a safe haven, diversifying out of that. I was on with the folks from Invesco yesterday. We've got an upcoming webcast, and it's really exciting when they talk about um, – Areas like supply chain or the amount of wheat that comes out of Russia and Ukraine supplies almost a third of the, the wheat around the world. They, it's scary. They're talking about food crises in areas uh, like Egypt and Afghanistan and much of Africa with this drought that's going on. They painted a pretty glim picture, and I don't think we're spending enough time talking about that. I mean, Nate, look, I, I know we don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but the idea is we are definitely in an inflationary boom. And the last time we saw this was in the late 70s. Most of us were not in the financial uh, money management business at that point in time. So the question is where the majority of people feel like we've, we're going to top out in commodity and inflation. Might this be around for a while? Might this be around for a couple more years? And as advisors and investors, what are we going to do about that? No, you're exactly right. And that's why I'm looking forward to uh, visiting with Corey Hofstein here in a minute, because we are going to talk about, you know, whether or not advisors should rethink portfolio construction. And I, I'm not sure if you saw this stat from uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas last week. So he said 98 percent of the 503 bond ETFs now have negative returns year to date. And if you look back over the, the, the past 12 months, 91% of bond ETFs have negative returns. That's an all-time record. And uh, you look at AGG, which I mentioned, broad bonds, that's actually off to its worst start ever. And I, I just wonder, you and I have talked over the past, I feel like, year 
about the quote-unquote death of the 60-40 portfolio. And I know it's a a little bit of a a tired trope for some people, but I I just wonder if there's something to that where advisors are going to really change their behavior here. And they don't want to be, if if that 40% is delivering fairly sharp negative returns, they are going to start looking elsewhere. To your point, whether it's commodities or alt strategies or or some of the, you know, the other areas. Now, I'll also say I know I'm a little bit of a, a broken record, but I, I think a lot of this comes down to what we think the Fed is going to do moving forward and whether or not they have the stomach. And again, I, I always, you know, I have fun out on Twitter. Uh, you actually responded to another tweet I sent on, on Sunday where I was asking people what's keeping them up at night right now, uh, basically what they think is the biggest risk to the markets. And you responded with, well, look, you know, what if we do have prolonged inflation? Because we end up having a less than hawkish Fed that, that doesn't want to ignite the next recession. I think that's the key area to watch right now. I mean, the Fed has a very tricky balancing act, and I think investors are trying to gauge what is the Fed going to do. That's going to play the key role here. And again, I know that that's broken record, but I, I just don't see they're either going to try to rein in inflation and potentially, you know, put us down the path towards a recession, slow that economic growth, and we're going to see that reflected in stocks, or they're going to stay a little more on the dovish side, and that could be supportive for the financial markets. But that's what it comes down to in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And hey, not to mention, we've got a political overlay in the midterms that are coming up in the fall. Um, That's got to have something to do with it as well. I mean, the Fed, especially this Fed, historically has been a supporter of the overall economy in a big, big way. Um, Although they want to put out this inflationary flame, I think most people are betting that they will be more dovish. And if they're more dovish, we're going to see inflation continue to run especially if we have supply chain problems and, and you know, with, with all the commodity prices going through the roof, uh, you see housing prices maintaining big levels. And then from a, uh, a labor standpoint, it's pretty good out there. And if your company is telling you to come into the office and you don't want to go, you can probably find another job pretty easily. <laughs> No, you're right. And and we're seeing some upward pressure on wages because of that. Let, let, let me ask you this. In just a few minutes left here, you had uh, mentioned investor sentiment and this uh, AAII survey. So the American Association of Individual Investor Survey. And if you look at the most recent one, this did show the lowest optimism among individual investors in nearly 30 years, which, Tom, that really struck me because you think about all of the things that we've been through over the past three decades, right? I mean, the, the, the dot-com crash, we've had the global financial crisis, the, the COVID crash in, in 2020. We, we could go on. There's some others out there. And this survey has shown that right now investors have less optimism than, than any time over the past three decades. What, what did you make of that? I mean, that was pretty striking to me. Well, back to what we talked about at the beginning, Nate. It, it was, uh, yes, people are concerned about volatility and equities, But the negative effect from inflation and and rising rates and the signaling from the Fed, especially those folks that are close to retirement or in retirement. I mean, uh, you look at uh, AAII members tend to skew a little bit older and have their own money and tend to be self-directed investors. It's it's a concern for sure. And I think it's something we want to take note of. However, it's also important to know that In many cases, when uh, sentiment gets so low that usually within the next year, we start to see some uh, bounce back because, as we know, the gut of the average investor tends to rarely be right. 
but it'll be interesting to see your conversation with Corey and Eric because both of them will have some great insight on that as well. Now, Nobody really has a crystal ball. No, I think that's that's perfectly said. I mean, when when I when I think about this survey and, and really just what we're talking about the, this week when we talk about flows and, and what performances look like so far this year, I just think things have been pretty darn easy for investors overall since, say, 2009, right? And And now for the first time in a while, things aren't so easy. Things do look a little more challenging. We, we do have rising rates. We do have 40-year high inflation. We do have a uh, major geopolitical situation. And some of these things investors have never had to contend with but before, like, like in their entire investing experience. They've ha- they haven't had to deal with this. And so I think maybe that's creating some of this pessimism and, and maybe even a lack of confidence in, in how investors approach the market. Now, I, I think most listeners know um, I, I do always preach taking a longer term you know, view of the markets, right? I'm optimistic on the longer term. Uh, I, 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 I generally have a bullish disposition over the longer term, but that doesn't make things easy in the shorter run. And I think investors are going to be need, need to be mentally prepared for that, right? Yeah, it, exactly. And, but, you know, we have to remember, we've been beat up. This COVID thing is has not treated us well. Uh, you know, mentally, it's a challenge for many folks. But here we are hitting the summer. Um, we'd love to take a break. We'd like to have some optimism. I'd like to get to the beach. I'd like to find uh, what cities the English beat is playing in and see them in person. <laughs> I, th- th- there, there are a lot of things where we, we'd love to be able to take a break. But as we know, the market doesn't always accommodate us. So it's important for us to discuss these things because after 30 years of declining rates, maybe for the first time we're going to be in an extended rate hike environment with inflation and for the most part, we haven't been through that. Those of us are living today. And if we were around, we really didn't have much money at the time. So this is serious stuff. So it's good that we're talking about it. Well, Tom, well said. Uh, excellent stuff as always this week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. That was Tom Leiden, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. The most successful companies don't improve an industry. They invent one. Ride the Moonshot ETF from Direction. These are 50 U.S. companies with potential for significant and disruptive impact in biotech, nanotech, space exploration, and more. The Moonshot Innovators ETF from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. My next guest is Corey Hofstein, co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research, who's a quantitative investment and research firm. And some of you may know, they're actually behind the Strategy Shares Newfound Resolve Robust Momentum ETF, ticker symbol ROMO, R-O-M-O. But I've got to tell you, Corey has produced 
some of the best research I've come across over the past two years. Uh, highly recommend his paper titled Liquidity Cascades. I consider that must reading for anyone in the investment space. And more recently, he helped author a paper titled Return Stacking, which is a topic we'll focus on today because this plays into a new suite of model portfolios Newfound is managing in partnership with Simplify Asset Management. And uh, Corey is now on the line with me from the sunny Cayman Islands. Corey, great finally having you on the podcast. Nate, thank you for having me, and, and thank you for those exceptionally kind words. So look, back in January, Newfound did announce a partnership with Simplify Asset Management uh, to offer a suite of ETF model portfolios. Those portfolios are called the Structural Alpha Series Portfolios. And these do hold some Simplify ETFs, but there are other products from a number of uh, other ETF issuers in there as well, right? This is open architecture. And this is I, open architecture, yep. Yeah, and, and I do want to get into the models themselves, but I, I thought it might be best to start with what you view as some of the common shortcomings in a traditional 60-40 portfolio. Because we have a lot of advisors uh, who listen to this podcast, and from my perspective, I feel like a, a lot of advisors, at least ones I've talked to, they take a pretty traditional approach to the markets, right? Where you have an equity bucket, uh, some U.S. and international stocks, there's a fixed income bucket, which tends to be pretty U.S.-centric, and then maybe they'll sprinkle in some things like real estate or, or gold or, or maybe even some thematic ETFs around the edges. So, so to start, what do you view as uh, some of the potential issues with that approach? Look, I've been in financial markets now for almost 14 years. And I think through the entirety of my career, the 60-40 portfolio has either been labeled dying or dead the entire time. And, and we should juxtapose that with the fact that I think a 60-40 portfolio had the best decade for risk-adjusted returns through the 2010s in history, right? So you have everyone pronouncing it dead, and then it goes on and has this terrific return. So I know better at this point than to call a 60-40 portfolio dead. And look, as investors, we need to embrace risk over the long run. And people could do a lot worse than a super cheap, tax-efficient, globally diversified 60-40. Full stop, great place to start. If I were to try to point out one critique or one flaw of a 60-40, though, it's that both stocks and bonds are susceptible to inflationary shocks. And so rather than the diversification between the two that we've become accustomed to over the last 30 plus years, during periods of inflation volatility or higher inflation, we could start to see elevated risk levels materialize in those sort of globally allocated stock bond portfolios. And so it's my view that if we want to build long-term resilient portfolios, that's a risk we should probably address. And to your point, that's exactly what we're seeing so far this year. I was just talking about this with ETF Trends' Tom Lydon, where everyone knows the story. We do currently have rising rates. We have 40-year high inflation. You look at broad stocks and bonds, both down roughly 10% so far this year. A lot of investors haven't experienced you know, this type of environment before. I think things have been pretty easy since 2009, but it looks like we, we do have a changing market environment. So, Corey, with that as the, the backdrop, 
Um, let's talk about the structural alpha portfolios because you're attempting to, to solve s some of these issues we were just describing. So take us through how you're doing that, just at a high level, and then we can get into some of the specific uh, ETF holdings. Well, let's start first maybe with how we've seen people try to solve this problem in the past because we're certainly not the first people to point this out. And the advisors we work with have tried to address this in, in their portfolios. And quite often what we see is advisors carve out a 10 to 20% slice to alternatives. And they might incorporate things like commodities, uh, which have historically done very well during inflationary periods. Or they might allocate to something like trend-following managers, managed futures funds, or CTAs, uh, which have also historically done fairly well during inflationary periods. The problem with those, at least over the last decade, is that commodities do very poorly during deflationary periods. So it was a big drag on the portfolio, and that diversification really didn't help you, making it harder to stick with. And managed futures just can sort of behave in their own weird way. In the 2010s, the SOCGen CTA index was up only 20% total. So anyone who carved out a big slug of their portfolio for that diversification benefit ended up, in hindsight, giving up a whole lot of return from that 60-40 that ended up doing quite well. And so what we wanted to ask the question really was, is there a way to have our cake and eat it too? One of the things we've seen institutions do for years and years and years is use a thoughtful application of leverage to carve out room in their portfolio and enable an allocation to alternatives in a manner that they call portable alpha. So they get their core, efficient, low-cost stock bond beta, and then they use a little bit of derivatives to apply on top their alpha sources. And ideally, those alpha sources are diversifying the risks that a 60-40 portfolio or any other global strategic asset allocation has. And that was largely unavailable to most retail investors or retail advisors until about two or three years ago, where new suites of products started to enter the market that enable investors to access this capital efficiency through ETFs. And that's really exciting to me. Okay, so this is perfect because what you're describing, again, this is the concept of return stacking. And you mentioned some of the ETFs that have come to market. I know one of the ETFs that is being used in your portfolios is the Wisdom Tree U.S. Efficient Core Fund, ticker NTSX, which this is essentially a 60-40 uh, portfolio that, that's leveraged up to 150%. So you have 90% of the assets in, in U.S. stocks, and then the, the remainder's in, in Treasury futures contracts, and you're getting that, le that leverage through the Treasuries. So maybe talk a little bit about that ETF and then how that fits in to the portfolio in, in this concept of capital efficiency and, and utilizing what you have freed up uh, by by using the leverage in NTSX to explore other asset classes. And that's a great example uh, to sort of lay out the framework for how we think about this. If we were to put, say, 100% of our capital into that ETF, well, it would probably be a pretty risky portfolio, a portfolio certainly with a volatility on par with 100% stocks. But if we were to, say, take two-thirds of our money and allocate it to that portfolio... Well, when you take two-thirds and multiply it by 150% or the, the leverage that you have, what you end up with is 100% exposure to a 60-40. Well, that's pretty interesting because we've only used two-thirds of our capital. 
But when we look through and sort of multiply the weights out, we get 100% exposure to a 60-40. And we've got one-third of our capital left over with which we can do whatever we want. We could hold it in cash and tactically deploy it if we want. Uh, I, I know, for example, high net worth investors that actually hold on to some extra cash so that they can try to buy assets uh, during economic declines. But I think what's particularly interesting is to think about ways in which you can allocate that cash to diversifying alternatives. So as an example, if I think managed futures are a really attractive proposition, I might take the, that one-third of my cash and go buy uh, DBMF, which is a uh, SOCGEN CTA index tracking ETF. And then what I have, in effect, is a 60-40 portfolio that I've stacked an extra 33% allocation to manage futures on top. So I get my 60-40 cake, and then the alternatives act as a little bit of icing on top, and hopefully the combination is a much more well-diversified base than, say, a more aggressively allocated all-equity portfolio. And, Corey, I don't want to belabor the point because I think you're explaining this really well, but as you know, in our business – uh, leverage tends to be a dirty word, right? I, I think about uh, Warren Buffett and the three L's and all that. Um, j- just hone in on this point. You look at something like NTSX, it is using leverage. Just I- explain why investors should consider uh, shifting their mindset on leverage, why maybe that shouldn't be considered a dirty word. So, I mean, you remember post-2008 as well as I do. I think all the marketing brochures for strategies said, no leverage, no derivatives, no shorting. Certainly, uh, leverage is a bit of a dirty word in our industry. And it probably, you know, should be, because most of the large financial catastrophes include leverage. But I would also contend that it's concentrated leverage that is particularly dangerous. That if you were to, say, take your equities and lever them up three times, that is a very potentially dangerous position. But let's consider what this portfolio looks like, perhaps unlevered, right? If you take a 60% equity, 40% bond, 33% managed future strategy, and you normalize the weights and say, let me get rid of the leverage, but keep sort of the the average allocation there, what you're going to end up with is actually a portfolio that is far less risky than a 60-40 measured by downs or volatility. And so what might actually happen is incorporating all that diversification can actually lead you to a portfolio that underperforms your strategic asset allocation you had beforehand. And so what you need to do is actually lever up that portfolio to get just back to the same risk level you were at before. And so leverage in and of itself is is not dangerous, in my opinion, when it's used to unlock the potential benefits of diversification, it's dangerous when it's used to uh, try to achieve a higher return with a concentrated asset position. So if we look at the structural alpha portfolio uh, construction overall, obviously, we've talked about this concept of return stacking and an ETF like NTSX, you mentioned managed futures, something like DBMF. Just give us a flavor overall. My understanding is there's four portfolios. There's a growth portfolio, moderate growth, conservative growth and conservative. Just give us a flavor overall as to what an investor would find in these in these portfolios. 
Yeah, so what you're really going to find in these portfolios, first and foremost, are positions that are generating that capital efficiency, where we can put a dollar in and get more than a dollar of exposure to stocks and bonds. So that's going to be the Wisdom Tree Efficient Core Series, as well as the Simplify Risk Parity Bond ETF, TYA, that gives you sort of two and a half to one exposure for intermediate term treasuries. After we sort of free up that capital, then what we're going to do is we're going to allocate either a little bit more to equities or or a little bit more to bonds, depending on where you are in the risk profile, as well as use that freed up capital to allocate to managed futures. So DBMF, uh, as you pointed out, is, is the ticker that we actually use. And then finally, recognizing that the big risk to all of this is sort of a crashing correlation scenario, that we have more than 100% exposure. If we saw stocks, bonds, and alternatives suddenly have strong correlations, that makes the position more risky. What we embed, and, and we use some simplified products here, is some downside hedging exposure, both to rates through the Simplify ETF PFIX, as well as equities through their um, S&P Downside Convexity ETF SPD and the corresponding international developed ETF EFD. And those positions are ideally meant to be sort of um, final stops for us in terms of risk management that we incorporate these downside hedges just in that rare case that leverage does put us in a bad position. And we don't have to get into the weeds here, but just overall, what does your basic ETF due diligence process look like? Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, I mean, we're approaching what, you know, 3,000 ETFs on the market. You made the point that previously some of these tools weren't available, and, and now they are in, in an ETF wrapper. How, how do you go about screening holdings? Yeah, I'm sure like you years ago, I used to know every ETF in the market, and now it feels like there's a new ETF that comes out daily. It's amazing. There's not several that come out daily. I, I can't keep track anymore. The reality is the first thing we're looking at is always process, process and the exposure. And before we even consider anything else, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that uh, this ETF that we're looking at has a process or an exposure that we're looking for? Is a well-thought-out process? Is it exactly what we want? Uh, once it sort of passes the process screen, then what we're looking at really is costs. Uh, costs for us, are both explicit, so looking at the expense ratio, as well as implicit, which is going to incorporate things like the bid-ask spread and tracking error relative to the net asset value, really understanding how liquidity uh, is going to impact the pricing of the ETF itself, and are we going to have sort of um, phantom expenses if we have to trade the position around or enter and exit the position. And so those are really the two big ones. First, we're just screening on that position and process, and then we're really trying to make sure we get an understanding of the expenses. Going back to what I was saying uh, earlier, and that I do think a lot of advisors are using a traditional 60-40 portfolio, and you've done a good job laying out uh, you know, how you're screening ETFs and, and managing the portfolios overall. But the, the question I have for you is, I know you like to say that uh, risk cannot be destroyed, only transformed, right? I feel like that's an a, 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 a infamous saying of yours, or maybe famous. Uh, and I, I did have an opportunity to, to crawl into your models in detail. I think they're fantastic, definitely compelling. But aren't there some trade-offs here as well compared to, say, a long-only buy-and-hold strategy? Like, as I think about this, tail hedges have costs, right? 
capital-efficient ETFs, uh, even though those are priced very competitively, those do have some costs embedded in them, at least more so than a three-basis point uh, S&P 500 ETF or a four-basis point uh, ag bond ETF. So I'm just curious, I mean, how does all that impact the overall risk-return equation here? I think I think you hit it spot on with, with that quote, uh, risk can't be destroyed, it's only transformed. The way I really think about risk is it's almost like this big ball of Play-Doh, right? And when we have a 60-40 portfolio, that big ball of Play-Doh is very concentrated in the inflationary regime. And so long as that inflationary risk doesn't pop up, a 60-40 portfolio can look great, but it doesn't mean the risk isn't there. It just means it hasn't materialized. What we're really trying to do with this portfolio is we can't get rid of the amount of Play-Doh, but we can sort of pick it apart and put it into different regimes. And so the reason I like this concept of return stacking is I think it makes it very explicit. We're trying to give you the 60-40, and we're trying to add the alternatives exposure on top. And if you enter into an environment where the 60-40 does poorly and the alternatives have a negative return, well, it's going to do worse than your standard 60-40 would have had you not taken a return stacking approach. So we try to be very transparent with that. But what we do believe is, Again, what we're really hoping for is the combination of assets are more diversified. So there may be more regimes in which that Play-Doh is now spread around. We have a little bit more risk everywhere, but the mass of Play-Doh in each of those regimes is much less. And so when you hit that risk environment, the potential portfolio impact is hopefully lower. So we're just trying to smush and smear that Play-Doh around a little bit more thoughtfully. In just a few minutes left here, um, how often are changes made to the portfolios? And then I should have asked you this earlier, but if advisors do want to access these models, what's the best way to do so? And then how are they notified of any changes? Yep, so advisors can go to our website, thinknewfound.com, and uh, they will see a tab for uh, uh, return stacking, and they'll find the structural alpha models under the return stacking tab. They can sign up and Uh, Once we verify that they are indeed a financial advisor or an investment professional, we'll give them access to the models, and they will get email notifications whenever there are updates. The models are completely free to subscribe. Uh, They're also getting up and available on different platforms, So, for example, on SmartX today and and working on getting on um, other camps in, in the works there. Um, but they are free to subscribe, no manager overlay fee, uh, and they'll get updates via email. The updates we expect to happen at least quarterly, just for a quarterly rebalance, but we are tracking them on a daily basis. Because there are these tail hedges embedded, those positions can grow rapidly during extreme market events. So if there's an extreme equity sell-off, our tail hedges could go up you know, 500 to 1,000% in value, And so we need to rebalance those positions to monetize those hedges. And so we're tracking those on a daily basis. Again, most quarters, we don't expect any interquarter rebalance, but it could happen depending on the path the market takes. And then lastly, before I let you go, and by the way, this could be a full hour-long discussion. You get one minute to answer this. So uh, I'm going to wish you good luck ahead of time. But what do you see as the overall value prop for advisors using uh, third-party models? Because I know... This can be a topic of debate for some advisors. I've covered this on the podcast previously where they feel like clients hire them to manage money, right? And they don't believe they should be outsourcing that to a third party. Just briefly, why, why do you think advisors should reconsider that uh, thought, thought process? 
Well, I think a lot of advisors today are seeing their job less as managing money and more as being wealth planners, and that the investment management is a means to an end of the client achieving their financial goal. And so the ability to outsource is really the ability to tap into another party's um, intellectual capital and their investment capital in financial markets. So you get to access all of sort of the thinking um, and research that we've done at Newfound that goes into tracking and managing these models, all the ETF due diligence, everything that happens, that's fully available to advisors for free. Uh, and that frees up their time and hopefully helps improve their process going forward. So I think for uh, advisors who don't necessarily see themselves as portfolio managers, but really see themselves as financial planners, it can be a huge value add and a huge time save. And did I see correctly, you will work with advisors to, to help customize your models if they want? Yep, we are uh, sort of slow rolling that program out. But if there are advisors who really love this concept but need customization, we are uh, trying to work with them to help customize these models. Well, Corey, great stuff this week. Uh, so glad we could finally have you on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Nate. Really appreciate it. That was Corey Hofstein, co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research. Did 2020's market crash shed a new light on how you view your portfolio risk? CDC, the Victory Shares U.S. Equity Income Enhanced Volatility Weighted ETF, helps investors curb emotional decision-making by investing in large-cap dividend stocks with the ability to systematically shift to cash during times of market duress in a tax-efficient manner. Visit vcm.com CDC today to learn more. Carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses before investing. To obtain a prospectus or summary prospectus containing this and other important information, Visit vcm.com slash prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. This ETF is distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC. I'm now joined by Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg. I think everyone knows simply one of the best in the business covering ETFs. So Eric co-hosts Bloomberg's ETF Focus TV show, ETF IQ. He co-hosts Bloomberg's ETF Focus podcast, Trillions. He wrote a fantastic book on ETFs, which I thought was really a great introductory guide to ETFs and how to use them in a portfolio. That's called the Institutional ETF Toolbox. And now Eric is fresh out with a brand new book today. It's titled The Bogle Effect. How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. Eric is now on the line with me from Philadelphia. Eric, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Nate. Thanks for that very kind introduction and the relevant intro music. As you know, I um, basically compare a cheap index fund to uh, the Ramones in the book. Um, and I stand by that. I thought you by would way, like that. By the way. You listen to that song, um, I, want, it's, I think you played I Want to Be Sedated or Blitzkrieg Bop. Anybody listens to that song today, it doesn't it sound just as fresh as it did. It's like ageless somehow. And I think that's part of my point was a cheap index fund, I believe, is a, a pretty ageless inve invention and way to invest. 
Well, so overall, how are you feeling today? I mean, today is actually the book's release date. Now, I, I mentioned this isn't your first rodeo, right? This isn't your first book, but it's got to be a, a, a great feeling seeing this thing released. Are you doing anything to celebrate today? Uh, not really. Um, I actually have a doctor's appointment. I'm actually in a doctor's office just a checkup. Uh, so I, I ran into one of their rooms to uh, do this interview. And then I'm um, going to have lunch with my wife. And then that's probably the most celebrating. And then my kid has a baseball game tonight. But otherwise, I'm doing a couple promotional things. Yesterday, I was in New York. I did a 5.40 a.m. Bloomberg TV. Hit. I saw that. Um, that's brutal. Uh, but uh, in, in financial TV, like, 6 in the morning is, like, prime time. So anytime you get invited to go on that early, you really should because the audience is bigger. Um, so I did that, did a, um, some other stuff at Bloomberg yesterday. Talked to Tom Keene, who, by the way, had some great John Vogel stories. Um, you know, a- anyone who has been in this business for, you know, at least, uh, let's say, 15, 20 years probably has a Vogel story uh, and a strong opinion about him. And, and he was no different. We had a good conversation on radio. But otherwise, I'm just trying to get the, the message out. I'm not totally comfortable doing, like, full-on shameless promotion. Um, but you've got to tell people about it so they know. Um, you know, I'm not Michael Lewis, and a lot of people don't don't know uh, much about me, so I have to get the word out outside of my small bubble of, of in my small network. And so that includes just trying to, you know, talk about it on social media and on podcasts. Um, your podcast is like a home game for me. I'm doing a couple that are out of the bubble, a couple things I've never heard of. Like, you know, um, one of them is even, like, based in mountain time. So there's a lot of – basically, I remember when I did my first book – um, it's funny. I went to see Jason Zweig before my first book came out of the Wall Street Journal, and I just asked for advice from him on what to do when you publish a book. And he was like, he was telling me how he ended up in like you know Minnesota and doing these very um, small, uh, like there was no media too small. And so I really uh, have taken that attitude for about a month, maybe three weeks, and then then I'm going to die down. So it's sort of like this explosion of promotion that you sort of have to do. Um, some of it's fun. Some of it, I just feel like I'm maybe like being annoying to people, but, um, I got to get over that. Self-promotion's tough. It's definitely not my skill set, And, you know, obviously I know you pretty well. I don't think it's, it's really something that you enjoy doing, but you wrote a book. I I think it's okay. Get the megaphone out and tell everybody uh, about it. Uh, I think it's definitely worth it. I mentioned before I read this over the weekend, greatly enjoyed it. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, Let me ask you this. How, How did, the process of writing this book compared to the institutional ETF toolbox? Like, was it easier because you had written a book before, or was it every bit as hard because you're covering new ground? How, how did this compare? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, honestly, it was pretty pretty close. Um, you know, I, I had a base of knowledge, and I had a vision. And I had something I needed to get off my chest. Um, you, you have to want to, it's almost like, it, it, you need, if you took, in order to write a book, it has to be gnawing at you. And both books did that. And I felt I had a lot of, a lot I needed to say. Um, I also learned a lot while writing in both cases, which is what happens. I think writing is the best way to, to learn. Also, I interviewed like 50 people for each book. And the amount of knowledge that I was able to get from those people on both of them was amazing. I mean, I didn't, I've never taken the CFA. I feel like writing books is my way to learn and catch up with everybody, to be honest. <laughs> Um, and I also found in both books, like, you know, uh, hit some hidden gems, things I, I felt that I had discovered that I'm not, I mean, I'm sure some people knew, but 
And I'm like, I'm an analyst in this area, and I didn't know this. And I, I think that's good. Like, for example, in the ETF toolbox, I didn't realize that the two guys who uh, came up with the idea for the ETF at the American Stock Exchange got the idea from an SEC report. That was shocking to me, and I ended up writing a whole article for Business Week about that. And then in this case, one of the things that just shocked me, that I, I knew Bogle was hardcore and I knew what he did, but he had a quote where he said, I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll, we'll know that Vanguard's efforts have begun to make a better world for investors when our market share starts to erode. And he said that in 91, and I, I just, I, I was floored. Um, and that, book, that was in a book that a lot of people didn't read of his called Character Counts. And I really, I really seized that because I, it really, I think, showed the different trip this guy was on. I mean, that's, have you ever heard of anybody rooting for their market share to erode? I, I can't think of another example in any business. And so to me, it's those little gems. You know, it's like you're mining deep and you find these little diamonds and they keep you going. They're like energy sources and they helped a lot and inspired me to keep going and excited me. Yeah. And you mentioned that this topic overall was sort of gnawing at you. I, I'd love to hear you talk more about why you you ultimately decided to write this book, because I think just about everyone in the investment industry and, and certainly many outside of it, they at least know who Jack Bogle is. Right. The founder of Vanguard the father of low-cost investing, but wh why did you decide to really do a deep dive here? Uh, yeah, a couple of reasons. First, I had hours of interviews with him in his office, about three and a half hours. And in the last interview, he was very prophetic. This was six months before he passed away. And I remember him saying that, you know, in the future, all these big asset managers are going to have to mutualize, like basically adopt Vanguard structure. And he had a bunch of other things that he was saying. He was also softening on a couple of things like ETFs and I don't know, after he passed away, I thought, man, that last interview in particular, he was really in a prophetic mood, and I, I should probably get this stuff on paper. And I felt in my interviews with him, he was living as a fund analyst. He was always writing books, so he was, his papers were spilling all over his office. He knew every ETF, the volume, the flows, the assets, the new theme ETFs coming out, and he wanted to debate. So a lot of our interviews were like these debates that are familiar to how we debate on Fintwit, to be honest. So I thought there was a lot of material there, and I was like, not every, everybody gets to hang out with somebody who has such influence, so I wanted to get that on paper. At the same time, as an analyst and tracking the flows for so long, I keep getting just, I keep finding myself going, man, this thing we're writing about, if you pull the thread on it, you end up back in 74 with Bogle's decision to create a mutually owned company. Um, so much of the flows are now governed by this thing. Vanguard alone takes in a billion a day for a decade, but then the rest of the money is pretty much going to Vanguard-esque stuff. Um, and if you look at the top 10 uh, mutual funds in the world, they have the top three, six of the top 10, and nine of the top 10 are now passive. And I also found it interesting that if you look at the past 10 years, Vanguard's taken in something like $2 trillion, and the rest of the industry is basically zero. Uh, you know, obviously some firms in there have done pretty well, but as the rest combined is about zero. Those are like rough numbers, but you get the idea. Also, nobody in my analyst research group covers Vanguard because they're private. So like even the woman who covers asset managers doesn't really know much about them. I also found they were a great vehicle to go everywhere. You know, it's th this book may seem like, oh, it's about the index fund. It really isn't. Um, you know, Vanguard gives you the sort of freedom to go talk about mutual funds, fine, ETFs, wealth management, ESG, themes, brokers, advisors, trading platforms, even meme stocks, behavioral finance, to, you know, investing in other, you know, how investors operate in other countries. 
And so I try to make sure people, I mean, I don't know if I got across in the cover, but this is a book about the future as much as the past and the present. And it, I try to make a very diverse book. Uh, the only problem I had is that there's no real arc. There's no fall. Uh, a lot of books that are written that do well have a rise and a fall. And with Bogle, it was just a slow rise. But the amount of impact he had, I just feel like this book, just this information just needed to get out, out there for posterity because I'm not sure everybody sees the depth and the width of the impact that this ownership structure has. And I think it's way bigger than the index fund. In my opinion, the index fund is merely a byproduct. You take away Bogle's structure and the mutual ownership structure, those two things, I think the index fund might have happened, but it has 2 3% of the assets it has today. You mentioned the uh, the narrative arc of this book and how there's no uh, fall or decline at the end. I, I guess that brings up a good question. I mean, after doing a full deep dive here, is there anything that you see knocking Vanguard off of its pedestal? You know, the stats you gave in the book that you just gave here, like how Vanguard has taken in an average of a billion dollars a day for the past 10 years. It's just mind-boggling stuff. Is there anything that you think could change that uh, world domination? Yeah. I mean, the, their Achilles heel is customer service. Uh, that is something that I think I didn't quite know how deep the problem was until I started researching. Uh, even the Boglehead site, you find people on there on the Boglehead site saying, this, this, look, I love them, but this is getting really annoying. I was on the phone for two hours. Uh, I'm, I'm, I might go to Fidelity. I mean, that's on the Boglehead site. Yelp.com gives their customer service 1.5 stars. Now, the Walmart on Columbus Boulevard gets the same rating. And if I just, you can imagine how bad that Philly Walmart uh, is. So you're at the same level as Walmart. You, you need to fix that. I think they banked up so much goodwill that they can withstand some of this um, because they have such a, again, they built up uh, so much uh, trust and loyalty with their investors. They can withstand a little of this, but I think they should focus on that. Um, and I think, honestly, the, the funds are all so cheap now. I don't think they need to go any lower. I think it's, we're fine having four or five basis points at this point. Just focus on the customer service. And Bogle himself said the only thing that would probably they could take down Vanguard is Vanguard. And he would always call it the enemy within. And what he really talked about was when they start not seeing their investors as honest to God, real life souls and human beings. And, uh, you know, as they get bigger and bigger and they have 30 million investors, it's very tough to fight that bureaucratic thing that happens to companies. So I think that to me is the one thing that can take down Vanguard is Vanguard. Over time, Fidelity, BlackRock, Schwab, Invesco, they all have Vanguardian funds and they're doing well with those funds. And I think, you know, maybe over time that will also slow down Vanguard a bit. But in a way, as I said earlier, that's Bogle's dream. Um, he, he wants Vanguard's market share to erode if it means that everybody else is getting good deals at other companies. Do you think we'll ever see uh, another fund company copy Vanguard's mutual ownership structure? Or do you just think there, there's no financial incentive, incentive there, so nobody's ever going to head down that path? I mean, I don't think so. Um, Bogle, in his last interview with me, said that he thinks, again, that companies will mutualize because they'll be that desperate. Um, probably after a prolonged bear market, I think there'll be consolidation. But nobody, I could find nobody who would agree with him on that. But I'm throwing that out there for people because that's one way you might see mutualization. That would become like serious desperation. But other than that, no. I mean, if they would have, they probably would have done it already. I mean, clearly this, the, this company has had such success with it. But that's what made the, it, the story so interesting to me is 
And one of the reasons, uh, questions I had, I wanted to answer is why has nobody copied their structure? And then I asked all 50 people that, and everybody had the same answer, basically. There's no economic incentive to do a structure like this. So then I asked the second question, which is, well, why did this guy do it? And almost everybody's answer was the same. That's a good question. So that led to a whole chapter, chapter four, which is called Explaining Vogel, where I, I, I try to deconstruct the elements that would go in to a person that would do this. Now, there was also a major, a major circumstantial situation at Wellington that was like a one in a million that I think was uh, really should get a lot of credit. But most people, even with that circumstance, probably just, ah, the hell with it. I'll go get a job at Goldman or start a new asset manager. Um, Bogle's fighting the, his former partners and the idea that he would voluntarily set up a mutually owned company, even if it was back office. And then champion that for so many years, knowing it would rob him of, you know, billions. That's weird. And that's why when I first met him, I, I walked into his office and I said, you know, it's very abnormal how easy it is to get a hold of you. And he goes, well, I'm abnormal in more ways than that, my friend. And I found that first sentence to really be completely true. And the more I dug into it, the more I found this guy to be very weird. And, and most people agreed that there will be another. He was a complete anomaly, although there are people doing Boglian things. Uh, he was, he's just not normal. And one of the things I, I premise in the book is it's possible he was miscast. Um, here's a guy. He did not have uh, – he, he, he wasn't driven by money. Most people in this industry are. A lot of people are, especially back in the 70s and 80s. You know, Wall Street, greed is good. A lot of people got into this industry to get rich. He didn't have that gene. Although what he did need was praise and adulation. And, uh, you know, his son told me that that was something his family even had a hard time understanding. He could never get enough of the St. Jack stuff. And I think normally people who want praise and adulation go into, like, the priesthood or the inner or the arts. So I do think Bogle was an unusual character for this industry, especially somebody to work that hard and do what he did. And that's part of the character study that I had so much fun and interest in. Um, and I tried to provide as much humanity about him as I could, because he wasn't perfect, but he deserves a lot of credit for, for what he did. And uh, I, it's hardly anybody can find any business that had a bigger impact on their industry than this guy. Yeah, I think I, I tweeted this out over the weekend, but, you know, from my perspective, this wasn't just a St. Jack book, right? I think a lot of people hear about St. Jack, and there's this impression that everything he did in the beginning was out of this uh, altruistic motivation. But as you cover very well in the book, Fate intervened quite a bit uh, here from how the mutual ownership structure came about to how the first index fund was launched. It, it was really interesting. There were things that happened that led Jack down this path. It wasn't him just waking up and saying, well, I'm going to try and save investors trillions of dollars. But once he got down that path, then he was just all in. And, uh, you know, he was going to do whatever he, he could to turn the screws in the fund industry and try to help investors. And, and really, that's what I took away. But Eric, Congratulations on the book. Uh, to everyone listening, I don't do this often. Seriously, I can't more highly recommend this. Go to Amazon, buy it. I promise you won't be disappointed. But Eric, uh, congratulations on the book, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Nate, and thank you for the kind words. I'll talk to you soon. That was Eric Balchunas, senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg and author of the brand new book, The Bogle Effect. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. At this time, I want to thank iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com sustainable. 
Next week, I'll be joined by BNY Mellon's Ben Slavin. I'm not sure there's any ETF topic Ben can't speak to, so we're going to go around the horn on a bunch of different areas. And then Octa Kavrock, who's product strategist at Leverage Shares, is going to highlight their leverage and inverse single stock ETFs. And they also have leverage and inverse ARC ETFs, uh, among other products. These all trade on European exchanges, so uh, that should be interesting as well. Until then, have a great week, everyone.